We've taken a little bit of a break from Daniel, but we are going back all in on Daniel 8 today. And I don't know if we have any vegetarians in the crowd, any meat eaters, because this sermon, the benefit of getting to do the announcements is I get to listen to the sermon twice. And I have to tell you, like, I took a lot of notes personally because that's how I learn, but um, it's definitely one that would require a fork and a knife kind of sermon. So anyway, for what it's worth, we're going to be reading uh, Daniel 8. If you find your pew Bible, it's the red pew Bible, it's going to be page 746. And the passage that I'll read is Daniel 8, 15 through 18. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. This is the word of the Lord. Happy Mother's Day, mothers. We literally would not be here without you. So, uh, thank you. Um, you know, when, we're, <clears throat> when I was looking at Mother's Day passages to preach a Mother's Day message, I just thought, you know, what better than to do an apocalyptic teaching from Daniel chapter 8? You know, that's, that's just where I went, you know. It's very pertaining. Um, as uh, Annalise said, it has been a long while since we've uh, looked at uh, Daniel because we have been in a Lenten series, and then we went um, through that, and that, that took a few months. And so here we are, back in Daniel 8 now. And the last chapter we looked at was chapter 7, and um, the beginning of the apocalyptic literature within the book of Daniel. And if you've never been here, or this is something new to you because you came in the last few months, uh, we do teach expository through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, at our church, and it's just a good way to eventually study the entire Bible without missing anything, which also includes the really, really challenging, hard stuff uh, that we're going to get to eventually, that we're not going to skip any of it. And verse, uh, chapters 7 through 12 are, are really, really challenging, and it only gets even more challenging as we move forward until about 11, and then it starts to dip back down to like, oh. but this chapter and then moving into 9 and 10, really tough, really hard stuff. And so um, I look forward to us kind of like exploring this and, and mining some of the, the nuggets out of this here. Um, I, I think most of you are here wanting something more substantial when it comes to Bible teaching. Uh, otherwise, you wouldn't have chosen to come to this church because you, you, there's a lot, a lot of other churches you can go to where you, you'll never have to even hear about Daniel chapter 8. Like, it'll never happen. So uh, you'd actually be really hard-pressed, actually, to find a church that teaches this apocalyptic literature in the East Bay. Like, it just doesn't happen that often. They'll teach through Daniel in terms of like, hey, uh, Daniel in the lion's den, or, or uh, the writing on the wall, or the fiery furnace, or they'll, they'll do different stories in Daniel, but when they come to chapter 7, they just kind of like, uh, let's skip all that. Let's, let's just, let's, let's skip Daniel. Chapter 7 through 12, we're not going to talk about it at all. Why? Well, I, I think Daniel gives us a glimpse as to why. If you look at the last verse of chapter 7, this is what it reads. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. 
And then if you look into chapter 8, the last verse of chapter 8, verse 27, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for days. Then I rose and I went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. This is the author that wrote this, that is telling us that he's greatly alarmed, that his color changed, that he's overcome, lay sick for days, appalled by the vision. He doesn't understand it. And so this is Daniel, the actual author of this book. And so you can easily see why people don't preach and teach out of these chapters in Daniel, because Daniel himself feels this way about it. But like Annalise said, we eat our veggies here, so let's go. Here we go. A little bit of background, because it has been several months uh, to catch us up to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel, uh, at the time of what, what's happening here, he's in his late 70s, early 80s. And he knew that the exile was about to come to an end. And how does he know that? Because the prophets Isaiah and, the, and Jeremiah wrote that this exile was going to last 70 years. So it's around this time that he's saying like, you know, I'm in my late 70s, early 80s. Uh, it's, it's about around this time that this exile is going to end. Daniel knew that the people of God would make their way back to Jerusalem, but these visions he was receiving, they weren't happy visions, even, those, even though those in exile would be able to return home. And you can read more about this with Nehemiah and Ezra uh, building the wall and going from Susa, the, the winter capital, going back and, and all that. So we've covered Dan, uh, Nehemiah before, and you can go back and review all those things. So even though this exile was saying, you guys are going to go home, it wasn't going to be like a, a happy homecoming. And they weren't going to be happy, happy, joy, joy for the rest of their life once they moved back. It was actually going to be pretty bad for Daniel's generation. And actually for generations to come afterwards, it was going to be horrible. So that's kind of the background. Verses 1 and 2, Daniel 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. Now chapter 7 began in the first year of Belshazzar. You can read that. So this, chapter 8, is two years later. And if you recall from chapter 7, chapter 7 gives us this timeline that begins at the beginning of Daniel, and it goes all the way until the return of Jesus Christ, which hasn't happened yet, by the way. So it is a long timeline that he's giving us in chapter 7. Chapter 8, it just kind of focuses on two periods within chapter 7, and so it's not this long timeline. It's just kind of like going from this to like this. And we're going to just be looking at this chunk, this, this portion in chapter 8. And so Daniel, he finds himself in Susa, which isn't where Daniel is physically at. Because physically, he's in Babylon. Susa is a couple hundred miles east of Babylon. It's in modern day Iran. And you hear of Susa in the book of Esther, in the book of Nehemiah. It's the winter palace of the Babylonian kings. And it's the administrative office of them. And so that's where things are happening. And so he, his vision is there, but he's physically in Babylon. Now moving forward, it's really important to keep this word in mind, this verb. It's see or saw. It's really important. Why? Because Daniel mentions it three times in verse 2. And so what Daniel is telling us to do is to see. And he wants us to see what he is seeing. Now look at verses 3 and 4. I raised my eyes and saw, 
And behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. So we are to see this vision. And the reason why we are to see this vision is because he wants us to feel what he felt. Feel what he felt in chapter 7, at the end of chapter 7. Feel what he felt at the end of chapter 8. He wants us to feel that, that he was overcome and lay sick for some days to be appalled by this vision. And hopefully we'll understand it because we have this benefit of looking back in history because we already know what happened. But in terms of the future, in terms of the end of the age, until Christ returned, we don't know that. Just like Daniel didn't know what exactly would have happened under Grecian rule or Roman rule. So what's up with this ram in verses 3 and 4? Well, this is the kingdom of Medo-Persia, that one horn was higher than the other, the higher representing the Persian side because the Persian side was more strong than the Median side, the Medo side. And now, how do we know this? How do you, how do you know that this is the Medo-Persians? Because the Bible tells me so. Verse 20. It's not because I'm smart and I figured this out. and like I did. Verse 20, just read ahead. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Not complicated, right? It tells us. And so the ram represents this empire which moved west, north, south, and it conquered everybody that was in its path. History tells us of this movement of the Persians, and they became a very, very powerful empire. And these two verses are actually covering a huge chunk of time and a huge geography of the Persians. Now we're told the Medo-Persian Empire would overtake the Babylonians, remember back in chapter 5, when the writing was on the wall. They're partying there, and then they see the hand, and it writes the Mechotela Parson, and all this kind of stuff. Daniel chapter 5, starting verse 26. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mena, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. That prophecy was already given. Daniel told that king, and it got overtaken. So Daniel already had seen the collapse of the Babylonian Empire before it actually even happened. He saw it. Back to Daniel chapter 8, verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. This is Greece. How do we know? Again, I'm not smart. I'm just reading ahead. You go to verse 21, and it tells us it's Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is in reference to Alexander the Great. Now, the Bible doesn't give us his name, Alexander the Great, but that's who this is. And all you got to do is look back in history from our present to see that that is so. And so this prophecy was actually future for Daniel. It is history for us, and we can verify this. It's the same thing with like Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, Isaiah writes about the Messiah, the, the Christ, right? Jesus Christ, the Savior. And now we can look back into history and say, Isaiah was right. 
Isaiah 53 is Jesus Christ. We can verify the things that are mentioned there, and we can look at these things in hindsight and then put together all these pieces that others that wrote it in future tense didn't have that access. Why do I bring this up? Because this is just an incredible testimony to the truthfulness of the Bible. I mean, think about this. Prophecies made centuries, four or five hundred years before they even happen, happened. And then we in 2019 can look back and say, like, it happened. The Bible wasn't lying. The Bible is true. Those prophecies came true. And so we can look at things historically to confirm the history, to confirm the prophecy. That prophecy is a very powerful evidence that the Bible is indeed true. You can use prophecy for that. Now going back to Daniel 8, starting in verse 6. He came to the ram with the two horns, Medo-Persia. He, Alexander the Great, Grecian Empire, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. So you imagine a, a ram fight where one falls and, and one rises. You, you guys, um, uh, his name just slips, he just passed away this Friday, but he did all those documentaries of animals. Um, not ringing a bell with anyone. He was my generation's Steve Irwin, and he just passed away like last Friday. But I remember him bringing animals onto the Tonight Show and then showing and scaring Johnny Carson and scaring like Jay Leno and scaring all these people. And so he, I remember like these rams coming like boom, like it's just amazing. You're like, whoa, how do rams do that? They just go at it like they don't care and they just knock each other out. And um, I remember when I was watching one of these shows later on that night, I had a nightmare about a ram. And the ram was like, tackling me, like attacking me, and I was trying to hold the ram back, and behind me I was pinned against a Dodge Ram. And I'm like, rams, like, oh, and, and I woke up, and then I'm fine. So, but these are the great empires of the world where one rises, Babylon, and then got, gets taken out by the Medo-Persians. And then Medo-Persians rise, and it gets taken out by Alexander the Great and the, the Grecian Empire. And so up to this point, no one was ever like Alexander the Great who, who ruled the world when he was in his 20s. He's 29. He's the king of the world. But here's the thing about all these powerful kingdoms that rise is that they always fall. And the only kingdom that stays is the kingdom of God. And part of why this is being written is to show all the kingdoms that rise and fall, God's kingdom remains. And he's predicting and he's telling us in his omniscience, guys, this stuff happens. I remain. I'm still in control. I'm still sovereign. It may look like it because of all the persecution that happens, but I'm telling you it's going to happen, but I'm going to remain at the very end. I am God. And so back to Daniel 8, verse 7. I saw him, close, saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. So Alexander the Great did this. He crushes the Medo-Persians. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he was cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. 
We, we know what happened to Alexander the Great. He died at 32 years old. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. This is going to blow your socks off in terms of history if you don't know this already. Just a little bit of background on Alexander the Great, though, before we get to that. This guy rises to power, takes over the world in 10 years. 10 years. No technology. No internet, no social media, no nothing. Like, no, no, nothing. Ten years. One of the battles, I mean, he has so many, but one of the battles is the battle um, that happened at the Granicus River in 334 BC. Alexander the Great has 35,000 troops. He's facing a Persian army on the riverbanks there that has over 100,000 troops. And they are known for their chariots. These chariots are like tanks, right? They're, they're, they're the military technology of the day. So what does Alexander the Great do? Well, these riverbanks are muddy. So if we fight there, the chariots don't mean anything. So let's fight there. So chariots, out of the picture. Can't do it. 100,000 versus 35,000. Alexander wins. Conquers everyone in his path, and that great horn was broken. And when that great horn was broken, this is the fascinating thing. If you don't know history and you're and you're reading Daniel 8, this should this is gonna be amazing. What happens after Alexander the Great fell? Four generals came up to take his place, and the empire was broken into four parts. This is four or five centuries before it happened, and Daniel has this dream. If you don't believe the Bible is true, I, you got to see a psychologist or something. Like, c come on. How can it be that accurate? And so after Alexander, these four generals take over. Lysimachus takes over Thrace and a large part of Asia Minor. Cassander rules Macedonia and Greece. Ptolemy controls Egypt, Palestine, C C Cilicia, Petra, Cyprus. Seleucus controls the rest of Asia, Mesopotamia, Levant, Persia, Syria, and India. And all you have to do is read history. You don't even have to read the Bible if you're like, oh, the Bible's just full of things that manipulations. But read regular world history, and it confirms this. It confirms Daniel 8. Before it happened, centuries before it even happened. It's amazing. This is absolutely crazy. Now, this Seleucos person is actually the guy that starts the Seleucid Empire. And this is really important because this is what is being talked about in terms of those focused times, in terms of like chapter 7, end of Daniel to eternity. This is one of those focused times that he's going to point out a character named Antiochus Epiphanes from the Seleucid Empire that was birthed out of Alexander the Great and the Grecian Empire when it broke up into these four generals. And we're going to talk about him in this next verse. Verse 9. Out of the one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Now, this little horn that's mentioned here in chapter 8 is different from the little horn that's mentioned in chapter 7. Because again, chapter 7 is beginning of Daniel through eternity. And it's talking about Antichrist. But chapter 8 is only this sliver of that timeline. And so, 
chapter 8 is just pointing us to who this particular little horn is in chapter 8. And it's not the same one as in chapter 7. This one is representing Antiochus Epiphanes. The person who represents man's rebellion to God. And so this vision was given to Daniel to forewarn Israel of their future persecution. That they are going to undergo a serious persecution. But God is faithful. God is faithful to deliver them once again. Because God delivered them from the Egyptians and slavery. God delivered them from the Babylonian captivity. God delivered them from the Medo-Persians. He's going to deliver them from the Grecians. He's going to deliver them from the Seleucid Empire, the Roman Empire, and forever. That he's still in control. That God is still sovereign. And yes, these people will seem like they're overtaking you. But believe me, I am in control. I am still going to rescue you, deliver you. And so he's telling them exactly what's going to happen centuries before it actually happens. And it's the same thing that Jesus Christ has done for us. That he tells us he's going to return for us. Now do we believe that? And so Daniel 8 is pointing to that same thing. Guys, you're the people of God. I promise deliverance from Egyptians, Babylonians, Mesopotamians, Grecians, Seleucid, Roman. I'm going to deliver you. Back to the end of chapter 7. Until I return. You're going to face all this terrible stuff in your life. But I'm returning. See, the purpose of this wasn't so that we can calendar everything. The purpose of Daniel writing this is to comfort us. For us to know, Jesus is coming back for us. And if you need any proof of it, look back in history. That all the promises he's made, he's kept. That he delivered all those people. Everything that he's written in Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 have come to fruition with the benefit of us in 2019 looking back into our past and saying, that was true. If all of that was true, why in the world would we ever doubt that he says, I'm coming back for you. Look at the past. I've proven it. I've proven faithful. Why would you doubt that I'm coming back for you? That God is in control. That he's at work. That he's sovereign. And so for us, what we need to be is ready. We need to be steady. That God is going to fulfill his faithful promises to even us. Rebellious children just like he did in all those other periods of time when those people were rebellious towards God, that he was still faithful to his children throughout history. He remains faithful even though we turn our back continually. That even in the face of those like Antiochus Epiphanes, those who are hostile towards the glorious land, and that glorious land refers to God's land. You can look that up in Ezekiel chapter 20 for that reference. That this little horn, Epiphanes, as well as little horns that follow him, like a Mussolini, like a Hitler, like whoever else you want to put in there, those little antichrists that have an animosity towards God and they want to wipe the gospel out of, off the face of the planet, He's victorious. Verse 10. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. 
and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. So you see this part of the vision in verse 10, this animosity directed towards God's children. And this is Antiochus Epiphanes, the it. Verse 11, it, it, Antiochus Epiphanes, became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. Nothing was going to stand in Epiphanes' way. He even deified himself. If you look back in history, what he did was he created coins in his image, and stamped on those coins was this phrase, manifest God like declaring himself to be God. And so he believed that he was Zeus manifest. That, and so with that, you can imagine how arrogant someone is to think that and how blasphemous. And, and so the same thing is going to be with all these little horns that come after Antiochus Epiphanes. They're going to have these same characteristics, right? The regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. If we read... The first book of Maccabees, Judas Maccabees leading this rebellion against Antiochus Epiphanes, Judas Maccabees records this abomination of desolation in his works. And so history, even if you don't believe in the Bible, just history records for us that Antiochus Epiphanes goes into the temple. He steals all the contents of the treasury in the temple. He does not allow the Jews to worship in the temple anymore. Does not allow them to worship God there anymore. And instead, he replaces it with a pagan altar to Zeus. And at this pagan altar, he brings in a pig. And we all know that pigs are unclean animals to the Jews. And there, he sacrifices this pig in that altar, in that temple... And he's just rubbing it in the faces of all the Jews and saying, you think your God's powerful? I'm powerful. Look what I get to do. I'm going to desecrate, blaspheme everything you guys believe. And this is what I think about your God. I can steal everything that is in his house. I can desecrate it with something unclean that I like to eat. Here. Verse 12. And a host will be given over to it with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. This is important. Verses in 11 and 12 are important for us to keep in mind towards the end. But just keep them in mind for now. This transgression is speaking of the people of God's transgression. Like in Deuteronomy. Where God warned his people that, you know, your disobedience is going to lead you into bondage. It's going to lead you into captivity. And that happened, the Babylonian captivity. And the people of God rebelled, even though they're delivered from Egypt. Right after they're delivered from Egypt, they start doing their thing, right? Golden calf, like right away. And the people of God rebel, they disobey God's commands, they disobey his laws. And in the beginning of Daniel, we find them taken captive by the Babylonians. Again, history, Babylonian captivity, we all learned it in school. And so here, we see the people of God returning to Jerusalem. And then they're going to be confronted with a choice. You are either going to do what Antiochus Epiphany orders you to do. And there's only one other choice. You die. There, there isn't a third. You either do what he says or you die. And there were quite a few God-fearing, God-loving people, actually, that just said, you know what? 
we're, we're going to go with Antiochus Epiphanes. Why? Just imagine if you are part of this people, enslaved people, that for generations you've been oppressed and cast aside and a slave people from Egypt. And then fast forward under Babylonian captivity, under Medo-Persian rule under Grecian rule. Like, imagine if you were brought up in that sort of a situation, and then you're confronted with this guy who says, I'll kill you for your belief. A lot of people would be just like, you know what? What's the difference? We, we've been enslaved. We've been oppressed all these years. What's the difference if I don't? But then there's this faithful remnant that continues, like a Judas Maccabees, who says, like, no, we're fighting. We are going to fight for our temple. We're going to fight for our right to worship God the way that he told us to worship. And so there's this remnant in the, verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the, the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And so who are these holy ones? These are angels. I think, my opinion. These are angels talking to one another, thinking like, how long is this going to go on? Because angels aren't omniscient like God is. God is all-knowing. Angels are not. And so here's Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificing pigs on the altar. He, he brings the Torah out. He brings the Torah out, the sacred text. He rips them in front of the people. He burns them in front of the people. And the, the angels are like, how long is God going to be okay with this? Because, like, Ark of the Covenant stuff, those people died. Like, when they went into the Holy of Holies, not right, they died. And yet, all this is happening? Like, what's going on? And so, while all this is going on, they're just wondering, how long is this going to last? Verse 14, and he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Now, there are a couple ways that most scholars interpret this time. Now, so one camp is they interpret this 2,300 as literal days so that it is six years, four months or so, and it's almost seven years, which then covers the amount of time that Antiochus Epiphanes kind of like persecuted the people of God, had this onslaught against the people of God. Or it's referring to the morning and the evening sacrifice, which then equals to 1,150 days because you just half it, right? It's two service, two sacrifices, sacrifices. So then it, you divide it by two. And so then that equals to three years. And if that's the case, that's the period of time of the abomination of desolation. I tend to think that it's the latter, that it's that three-year period of the abomination of desolation. You can disagree, not a big deal, but that's just what I think. I tend to think this because in 167 BC, he sets up his altar to Zeus, he, he blasphemes it, and it's not until 164 BC that the temple is cleansed, it's rededicated a lot because of the Maccabees, and that's why the Jews celebrate Hanukkah. That's what this feast is. This is when Hanukkah began. And so that's just my thought. Take with it what you want. 
This is what we find in John chapter 10, right? When Jesus goes in John chapter 10, verse 22, and it says, at the time of the feast of dedication, it took place in Jerusalem. This is the temple that Jesus went to in John chapter 10, and it was for this feast. It was for Hanukkah. Back to Daniel 8, verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up, he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. Now, this wasn't speaking of the end of the age, like in chapter 7. Again, chapter 8, just this focal point. It's talking about the abomination of desolation, the end of that. That God will intervene on behalf of his people. And that this vicious horn will be broken, not by the people, but by God. And that God is going to do that. And this is going to be this foretaste of defeat for that final defeat of Antichrist. Verse 20. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king, Alexander the Great. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, where the Seleucid Empire came from... Four kingdoms shall arise from this nation, but not with his power, not with Alexander the Great's power, not that dominant. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, Antiochus Epiphanes, one who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall become great. He made his own coin, saying he's God. Without warning, he shall destroy men and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken but by no human hand behind all of this what is happening there are dark forces behind all of this physical earthly stuff that is happening that there is Satan and his dark forces behind the deception. There's this curtain and there's spiritual curtain. And behind that are these dark forces that are still subjugated to God, but they are there nonetheless. Now in verse 23, it speaks of Antichrist. And there will be many Antichrists leading up to the final Antichrist. Many who will rise and fall, showing us that God still defeats evil. Like a Mussolini, like a Hitler. And as we look at the root of all this defiance, whether it's from Babylon until the final Antichrist, what do they have in common? There's always pride. There's always arrogance. There's always what the Bible says here in terms of verse 23 of being bold face. And that is common to find these characteristics in verses 23 through 25 in those who reject God and persecute his people. Those characteristics are there for all of them. And in verse 26, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that had been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. So, Daniel, I know I gave you all this hundreds of years of 
future prophecy, I want you to roll it up. I want you to preserve it because this isn't going to happen for another 400 years with epiphanies. It's not going to happen. So why God did you give this information to Daniel if it's not happening for another four centuries? Again, because we're going to need this. We're going to need to be reminded that when evil seems to triumph over good, and we seem to question, does God really exist? Because if he did, then why is all this happening? For us to open up our Bibles again, turn to Daniel 8, and to see God is in control. He told us all, all that we're going to face. He told us to look that to that forward period of when Christ returns. And we have to keep looking that way. And we have to be ready. That the evil didn't stop with the Babylonians, Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Seleucids, or even the Romans are moving forward. That evil won't stop until the return of Christ. Where he ultimately stamps out evil forever. It's to remind us. It's to comfort us. When, when we question, how come evil keeps going? It does. He told us it will. And we see man's wickedness and all the injustice and everything that's affected by the disobedience. But it's not necessarily just the disobedience on this side of the curtain. It's the disobedience from the spiritual side of the curtain. And it is sickening to think how many people have been negatively affected by evil and injustice throughout human history. But here's the message. We are not going to be the people who will conquer evil and injustice. Because we're on this side of the curtain. And we keep fighting this side of the curtain. So yes, we fight things that we don't agree with in terms of social justice things. There are a lot of things that we don't agree with and we are taking a stand and, and, and we fight against it. We do. But as long as we look to people to overcome darkness, we fail. Why? Because we can't address it on this side of the curtain without Jesus Christ. And so that's why we never win. That's why evil continues to exist. Because we think if we just reform policies, if we just do things politically, if we just get right with politically, if we just vote a certain way for certain people, if we do, it's all on this side of the curtain. We will not win. It has to be on that side. The evil powers, the darkness, the forces, it is only through Jesus Christ because you and I are physical beings. How in the world are you and I going to fight a demon? It's impossible. Not without Jesus in our life. Not without the Holy Spirit working in our life. And that's the thing that people are seeming to lose. Do we fight against social justice or injustice? Absolutely. On this side of the curtain. On that side, we pray. That's all we can do. You're not going to do anything against the demon physically. We do everything physically on this side. We do everything spiritually on that side. We need to do both. And if you only stick to this side of the curtain, you lose. Plain and simple. Just look at our human history. When have we won? How are we doing today? Why? Because we're not addressing that side. We keep on thinking, oh, if we do these things over here, the world will change. Has it? It doesn't. 
So as long as we look to people to overcome darkness, we continue to fail. And it's only in Jesus Christ on that side that hearts are changed, that only Christ can be victorious over the forces of evil that are in that realm. And he breaks through that curtain. He comes into our world and he shows us, hey guys, you need me. To overcome all this evil and this injustice here, we got to go over there. And you need me to go over there. And I'm going to bridge that with my father. And we're going to make the world right. But if you do it without me, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greek, that's going to happen. You keep fighting this side, that's going to happen. That's how he sees it. And so verse 27, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and I went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and I did not understand it. See, he sees everything. He saw all of it. He doesn't have the hindsight that we have in understanding all of these things now because he doesn't even see Jesus Messiah. He knows about it. He read about it. But we actually got to experience it because Jesus did that 2,000 years ago. We have the full picture and so he goes on business as usual. He, and here's the thing for us. We can't just stop. We, we can't be preoccupied with these things. We have to go about our lives as God has will, knowing that evil continues, that God is still at work, and that we need to be about the king's business, capital K. We still need to go about the king's business. Even in the midst of all this appalling injustice of the world that we face today, we still have to go about the king's business. Even if we don't understand why evil exists if God is so good. That injustice is still happening even though we so-called believe in this holy, just God. And Daniel was given this vision of these things that just made him sick. Just like some of those injustice and injustices and evils make us sick. It's sickening, these mass shootings that happen in our country. But the thing is, if we keep addressing it on this side, we lose. Never going to overcome it. We have to enter it from that side. The evil one has the same game plan all the time. It's nothing complicated whatsoever. And it goes back to verses 11 and 12. The evil one will always have us Question, sacrifice. Namely, Jesus Christ's sacrifice. Always. He will always attack, the darkness always attacks the cross. It always attacks the people of God who believe Christ and in him crucified. Always. Second thing it always attacks is the sanctuary that's overthrown. Verse 11, going back to that again. Not the sanctuary of this building. The sanctuary as in me and you as living temples of God. That we are the living temples. That we are the ones that he is looking to destroy. So he always has people question Christ and him crucified. And us as his living sacrifice that Christ was thought us worthy of dying for. He always has us question those things. And then the last thing he'll do is it's in actually in verse 12. He will look to cast truth to the ground. See, we're warned over and over again uh, uh, against false teachers and false prophets all throughout the Bible. And it's the same attack. 
So how are we to face these attacks? How are we to deal with evil and injustice that are going to continue in our world? The, Daniel 8 tells us that. Daniel 7 tells us that. We are to continue going about our lives doing the king's business. That's why we're here. We're to do the king's business. Now what is the king's business? We're to combat the exact things that he is going against us in, in verses 11 and 12. We are to lead people to the cross and to Christ. Christ crucified. That's where we lead them. We are to love one another as those who are living temples, the church. We are to stay true to God's word. To beware of false teachings. To beware of false prophets who lead us away from Christ, from church, from the people who represent the church, and from his word. Now we know that this evil will continue, that this attack against Jesus Christ, against his people, against his church, against his word will continue. But that is exactly what we are to remain faithful and about the king's business, is to return to Christ continually and the cross, to stay faithful to the cross, to stay faithful to his people, the living church, and to stay faithful to his word, the truth. Let's pray. God, in our post-Christian society, I think many times we don't even give a chance for your truth to come forward, that there's all these presuppositions that people have made already about an antiquated book, but how silly that is when we just kind of take some time to look at just a simple passage like Daniel chapter 8 and to see from our present vantage point in 2019 what you prophesied four or 500 years before that even happened, that that can be verified as an evidence of your truth and how faithful you've been throughout human history God forgive us of our unfaithfulness forgive us of our doubt I pray God that you would empower your church to increased faithfulness to your cross in Christ crucified to your church the living temple of God to your word the truth the word of God Lord, we're truly humbled that we're able to hear from you, that you love us so much and that you still impart to us the messages from the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen.